Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Will emerging market currencies be the primary victim of the ongoing trade skirmishes? Here to answer that question is Kumal Srikumar. He is president and founder of Srikumar Global Strategies, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist coming to us from the lovely Santa Monica, California. Samal, thank you so much. Uh, Sri, thank you so much for being with us. So uh, what is your take on emerging markets currencies heading into year end here? Good to be with you and Pim, uh, Lisa. In terms of what is happening, the emerging markets are clearly reacting to a stronger and stronger dollar that we have seen over the last several months. A Fed which insists that it has not stopped hiking, it is going to keep increasing interest rates. And we have a situation of trade war, which is really very negative for many of the emerging markets. So, It may not always be a conscious move to depreciate their currencies in order to fight a trade war, Lisa, but that clearly is the ultimate result. Uh, We have seen that recently with the Turkish lira. We have seen the Argentine peso, the Indian rupee. Uh, In the case of Argentina and India, they have been all-time record lows, and Argentina is going to compete with the United States for Chinese markets Uh, The Indian manufactured exports will become even more competitive globally. So the problem here is that it is going to worsen President Trump's problems. The U.S. trade deficit is going to worsen, and we are going to have to face some way to depreciate the U.S. dollar. And once that happens, then you have the other countries reacting yet again. Shri, one of the area, one of the things that I look at on a pretty regular basis is the price of copper as a proxy for industrial activity, as it is an industrial metal. The price of copper uh, is down more than fifteen percent since it's uh, high in mid June. Do you believe that we're going to find that the world economy is not as robust as many economists believe? Uh, Pim, that is a great question, and I would pair your answering your question. Uh, to what we see as the message that is coming from one is from Dr. Copper, as it's popularly known for its record in predicting the global economy, along with what you see happening with the U.S. equity market, which has been rushing up in the last few days because of corporate earnings, even as the bond market continues to give you danger signal and the two to 10-year spread on the U.S. treasuries continues to be below 30 basis points. The combination of weakness in copper and a very narrow spread suggests to me that if we could invert the yield curve even by September if the Fed were to hike it on September 26th, and then you are looking possibly for a U.S. recession and a global recession toward the end of next year. And if we have a trade war accelerating, it only pushes the world further into recession. Well, that's a pretty a pretty dire prediction, and there are a growing number of people who do 
agree with you, but Sri, I want to push back a little bit on this idea of the ongoing depreciation of emerging market currencies and the uh, appreciation of the U.S. dollar. First of all, you are seeing uh, some of these developing nations deploying their foreign currency reserves to support their currencies. So that is evidence that they don't want to see such depreciation. Uh, and, And the U.S. is one country, but there are other countries that are increasingly dominant, including China and India, uh, which can drive a lot of economic activity. So what do you say to people who argue uh, for emerging market investments now based on those arguments? I would say emerging markets are going to look great, but not yet. Uh, In other words, the emerging market currencies are going to continue to depreciate, in my opinion, Lisa. You were right on in saying that many countries don't want it to depreciate. Uh, Both India and Argentina are facing the prospect of higher domestic inflation as a result of weaker currencies. So even for domestic reasons, they want to support currencies. The problem is the following. They are not in control of it. If the Fed were to increase interest rates and if President President Trump were to continue with the trade wars, their currencies are going to depreciate no matter what they do or the central banks are going to figure out that they are going to spend more and more of their dollar reserves to defend the currencies, which is basically meaningless if the fundamentals are suggesting a weaker currency. So it is, may not be intentional that these countries are doing it, and you are right in saying that they are trying to control inflation, they don't want the currencies to depreciate, but it's beyond their control. Also, take into account that recently Larry Kudlow, economic advisor to the president, has suggested that the Fed go very slow on its rate hikes. The concern here is if the Fed were to keep tightening, uh, it's going to cause the dollar to strengthen even further, worsen the trade situation. Uh, So you're going to have a conflict between the Fed and the administration coming up uh, within the next two to three months. All right. We want to thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, Kamal Ashri Kumar is the president and the founder of Ashri Kumar Global Strategies. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He is based in Santa Monica, California. And you can follow Shri on Twitter at Shri, S-R-I-K, Global. The United States spends the most on health care per person. It uh, spends uh, something on the order of about $3.3 trillion. That's nearly 20% of U.S. GDP. Here to tell us about how this money is spent and can it be more efficiently used in order to bring high-quality health care to Americans is Vijay Govindarajan. He is a the Cox Distinguished Professor from Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. Also joining us is Ravi Ramamurti. He is the University Distinguished Professor of International Business and Strategy and Director of the Center for Emerging Markets at Northeastern University. They are both the authors of the new book entitled Reverse Innovation in Healthcare how to make value-based delivery work. Gentlemen and professors, thank you very much for being with us. Professor Govindarajan, I want to begin with you and just set out, why did you decide to write this book? You see, the way we started on this book is 
both of us are from India, and what we found was India is a country which has got one billion population who are poor, therefore they can't afford to pay a lot on healthcare. And India also has limited number of doctors and limited number of hospitals. So the question is, how do you serve a large fraction of the population with limited hospital infrastructure and, and medical doctors? The only way you can do it is through healthcare delivery innovations. So we said there has to be some hospitals which do breakthrough healthcare delivery innovations, and we found seven of them, and we used that to really generate our insights about how you can lower healthcare costs dramatically. So Ravi, come on in here. Can you give us a sense of what some of those innovations were that you found in those hospitals? Yeah, one of the important innovations that these hospitals use is how they configure their assets into a hub and spoke network. And they send advanced uh, procedures and patients requiring advanced care to the hubs where they also have the most advanced specialists and the most advanced equipment. And in the spokes, they deal with more routine cases. Now, this may seem like a simple idea, but in fact, in the U.S., it is something we don't see very much of. We have, in other words, in the U.S., too many hospitals that aspire to be hubs and not enough spokes. And therefore, you have hospitals that become very expensive because every hospital is trying to do every procedure. So this is one uh, example. Now, as a result of this configuration, in the Indian situation, you actually have hospitals that do high volumes of various surgeries. And it's not because there are many more Indians requiring those procedures. It's just that the available volume is funneled into the hubs. And so you can have a heart hospital that does 16,000 open heart surgeries in a year compared to about 4,000 in even the most advanced leading uh, heart hospital in the U.S. So this is one example. And we have five principles that we identified from the research. And this is one of the principles. If you, if you want me to, I can quickly walk you through the other principles. Sure. Give us, one, give us another one that you believe could be applicable to the United States. Okay, another principle we identified, we call it task shifting. And this is trying to free up doctors so they do the work that only doctors can do and allow others to do less uh, sophisticated work. In the U.S., again, we have the opposite situation where doctors spend more than half their time on administrative work. In, if you look at the Indian exemplar hospitals we studied, a doctor in one of the eye hospitals is surrounded by 10 support staff who free up the doctor from all of the non-medical work. So this doctor is three to four times as productive as an eye surgeon in the U.S. So we call this task shifting. And the interesting thing about what the Indians do is not just that they have nurses and nurse practitioners helping doctors. They have created entirely new categories of workers, each appropriately matched to the work required. And this not only saves money, but actually improves quality because each person is really qualified and motivated to do the tasks that they are assigned. Yeah. 
Well, one thing uh, that is sort of interesting in light of healthcare conversations in the U.S. right now is the cost of pharmaceuticals. And Fiji, I want you to come on in here because a lot of people say, yeah, healthcare is cheaper in other countries outside the U.S. because uh, drug companies can sell pharmaceuticals at lower prices. The, the generics are, are sold at lower prices. Do you think that that is a significant component of the lower cost of healthcare in some in, in India and other countries? Certainly, generic drugs can contribute to lower cost in a country like India. Certainly, labor cost is also cheaper. For instance, doctor's salaries or nurses' salaries are cheaper in India as compared to the U.S. We kind of adjusted for all those. And what we find is even after you adjust the Indian cost structure for U.S. salaries, and U.S. drug prices, what we find is the Indian exemplars, if you take open-heart surgery, they are still 20% of the cost of open-heart surgery in this country. Are they as effective? And their quality is better than what we find in the U.S. For instance, in open-heart surgery, one measure of quality is mortality rates 30 days after surgery. For Narayana Health, which is one of our hospitals in India, their mortality rates 30 days after surgery is 1.4%. And the U.S. average is 1.9%. So their quality is on par, maybe even slightly ahead. So therefore, reverse innovation is not just about reducing cost. It is about delivering value. That means very high quality at very low cost. Professor Ramamurti, what do you believe to be the biggest obstacle in the United States to implementing some of the described efficiencies and changes which would benefit the population? Yeah, I think the fee-for-service system that we have is a major impediment because it motivates uh, everyone in the system to provide services without looking, keeping their eye on the ultimate objective, which is the health of the patient. And now there are plans in place to move, especially in yeah. Medicare, uh, to a different system, which is more risk-sharing with the hospitals and the providers. Right. We think that's a step in the right direction. That's one reason we wrote the book at, yeah. at this time, because we think as hospitals move in that direction, they're going to be looking for ways to, to bring down the their costs. costs without lowering their quality. Ravi Ramamurti, University Distinguished Professor of International Business and Strategy and Director of the Center for Emerging Markets at Northeastern University, and Vijay Govindarajan. He is the Cox Distinguished Professor at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business, authors of Reverse Innovation in Healthcare. to bring in Dan Hansen. He is UK economist for Bloomberg Economics, and he joins us from our London bureau. Dan, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe you could just outline what has the analysis said about the future of the UK economy if it is outside of the European Union? Well, thanks for having me. So if we're outside the European Union, the UK economy is outside the European Union, it's going to be costly for us. I mean, so much depends on the deal we get with the European Union. And that's why the events over the past few days have been so important. You've seen the UK government appear, at least, to move towards a softer Brexit. 
Um, but even that softer Brexit, we think, could see the economy around 5% smaller by about 2030. So that's a significant hit. Um, and if we go towards this dreaded no-deal scenario, that cost could rise substantially up to uh, maybe perhaps 7% of GDP. So these are these are big numbers that we're talking about. And I think the really important point here is it's the form of Brexit that matters the most. It's not that we're just leaving and there's just this cost. Yeah. It really is the shape of the deal we're going to get with the EU that will determine the ultimate cost for the UK economy. You know, Dan, whenever you talk about these projections, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from people saying, oh, you're just taking the worst case scenario and you're against Brexit, so you're trying to paint it this way, or you're for Brexit, so you're trying to paint mm -hmm. it that way. I'm wondering, is there any way to quantify what the economic effect has already been uh, stemming from the uncertainty that Brexit has introduced? Yes, sure. So we, we've done some analysis on this and it, it really comes down to what, what's your counterfactual. Um, and the way we take, we take quite a simple approach and just say, what would we have forecast had the UK not decided to leave the European Union? And our numbers suggest that the UK is about, at the moment, is about 1% smaller than it otherwise would have been. Now, you're quite right. It's uncertainty that's had an effect, especially on business investment in the United Kingdom. But it's also this drop in the pound that's fed through to inflation and that squeezed incomes in the UK. It's made things a lot more expensive for consumers and that's seen consumer spending slow. So it's those two effects really that have that have seen the economy slow. But our number is about 1% um, of GDP. So we're, the economy we think is about 1% of GDP smaller than it otherwise would have been. What do you believe the reaction or the next moves on the part of the Bank of England are going to be given this scenario? So it's really difficult for the Bank of England because they've been struggling with this uh, this overshoot of inflation. So inflation's gone up at the end of last year. It was up at 3% in the UK. But as I say, that was all sterling driven. And the Bank of England's target's actually 2%. Um, but at the same time, they've had a slowing economy. So you've had the monetary policy makers' nightmare. It's the trade-off. They've got surging inflation. You've got a slowing economy. What do you do? Um, in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, they loosen policy in quite significantly. But back in November, they, they lifted rates very marginally by 25 basis points and took back some of that stimulus. And now we think at their next meeting, which comes on the 2nd of August, they're going to lift rates again. Um, the unemployment rate in the United Kingdom's at a 42-year low. Growth, we saw figures today that show growth likely to rebound in the second quarter. Um, and inflation's coming down, but it's still above the 2% target um, and pay growth is picking up. So all of those factors together, we think their next move is actually going to come in a couple of weeks time on the 2nd of August. All right. Although the manufacturing data out of the UK was somewhat disappointing, right? Well, it, I mean, it, the manufacturing sector grew month on month. It was, it was the broader uh, factory sector, you're right, did contract. But part of that was due to erratic factors, one ah. of which... Is the uh, it's been very hot weather here in the UK for once, and that, the weather. Uh, I love the blaming that, of the that, weather. <laughs> it's always a good thing to go to. If you, uh, that, although some people might no, say, no, I, I, I would just say I I was watching uh, our television coverage earlier today, and Tom Keane was uh, at uh, Parliament Square in front of Westminster. And you could see all the grass has uh, decidedly gone brown because of this hot uh, weather. All right. All right. So weather weather matters. Dan, uh, just, just real quick here. I mm -hmm. want to get your sense going back to what you were saying. The form of Brexit matters quite a bit. 
Do you see a much greater likelihood that we are going to get a so-called no-deal Brexit, which would ultimately remove, in your prediction, uh, about 7% of GDP annually by the end of 2030? At the moment, I think there is a risk simply because of what's happened in the last 24 hours. It's quite clear in the the UK cabinet, two of the most prominent Brexiteers have left the UK or resigned from the UK cabinet. Right. And you've got a lot of hardline conservative lawmakers, so that's the pa- the party who are in power in the UK, who are quite keen to have a very clean break um, from the European Union. Now, if they decide to challenge Theresa May's leadership, yeah, um, then it's quite possible that you end up getting a very uh, anti-EU or very yeah. pro-Brexit uh, leader in the Tory party and that lifts the chances quite significantly of a, of a harder or an, even a no-deal Brexit. Well, thank you, you know. so much. We're, unfortunately, we've got to leave it there, but we'll talk with you soon again about this issue. Dan Hansen, UK economist for Bloomberg Economics, talking all about uh, the various scenarios and effects of Brexit. Tesla shares up nearly 2% today following a 3% gain yesterday after uh, news came out today that uh, the company is planning a Chinese auto manufacturing plant with the capacity to produce 500,000 cars. Joining us now, Jamie Butters, U.S. Autos Editor for Bloomberg News, joining us from the Detroit Bureau. Jamie, this is a really big deal. Explain why. I mean, there's, there's sort of two sides to this. Tesla needs the sort of production heft that they could potentially get from this. But also tell us what it means about what's going on between the U.S. and China. <laughs> well, yeah, those are, those are some pretty big things. So, yeah, I mean, Tesla, you know, has been so it's small. It's still kind of starting up. They really only have the one car factory this you know to get one in china and then they'll announce by the end of the year should announce some plans for a a third assembly plant in europe you know that really can go a long way toward them really kind of becoming a a real automaker something stable enough to survive a recession (laughs) um big enough to really gain some economies of scale so it's a, this is an important step. We've kind of seen it coming. He's been talking, been working on it for more than a year, uh, but to actually get it to come together as a wholly owned Tesla plant in China, it's a big step for Tesla. Of course, they've got to pay for it, and there's some other issues there. Uh, but it is very interesting when you think about it in light of all the trade chaos you know that the Trump administration has created, and we're seeing rising tariffs of you know, in the US, U.S. against China-made products, in China against U.S.-made products, including automobiles, <laughs> as well as aluminum and steel and all these other things going on. And so here's the, you know, the youngest publicly traded U.S. automaker uh, announcing plans to build a factory and basically double their capacity by building a factory in, uh, in Shanghai, outside of Shanghai. Uh, so, you know, which, which will help it avoid the tariffs on both sides of the deal. Uh, but it'll be really, I'll be really curious to see if President Trump has anything to say about it. He's criticized Harley Davidson for their plans to move some work uh, outside of the U.S. in order to avoid Europe's tariffs against U.S.-made products. This isn't going to take any work away from the U.S., but sometimes the president gets real sensitive about American companies creating manufacturing jobs anywhere other than the U.S. of A. 
Jamie Butters, is it at all ironic that on this day when we're talking about China and Tesla, that Tesla laid off 9% of its workforce? Um, is it ironic? Well, Oh, and also, I'll give you a moment to ponder yeah. that. As we re recall, in 2015, there was a story about how Tesla was going to produce electric vehicles in China. Oh, but wait, that story surfaced again in 2016 and in 2017. If they had actually started building that plant in 2015, it would already be finished by now. Yeah, uh, but... I don't, they, Tesla has moved at a very rapid pace <laughs> to grow at the rate they have, and I don't know if they could have had the money or the, uh, you know, intellectual energy to needed to do all that. Right. Uh, you know, Elon Musk really does everything very, his very hands-on. Uh, so having another operation on another continent may have been too much for them at the time. It is interesting. You're right. I mean, they're going to add thousands presumably thousands of jobs, we don't know how many, but some number of thousands in China, and they're cutting uh, thousands, you know, about, was it, about 3,000, right. mostly in the U.S. You know, it seems that a lot of the U.S. cutbacks are related to the Solar City operations. We're certainly seeing a lot, of, you know, the retail folks and right. installers from Solar City. So it may just be more of a business alignment. A lot, you know, a lot of things are uh, fungible. I mean, they're saying, you know, this plant is only going to produce vehicles for China. The California plant will produce for the rest of the world, right. or at least until Europe gets going. But what you can't always move is people. You know, <laughs> it's one thing, you know, it's hard enough for Nissan or Toyota to move people from Southern California to Texas or Tennessee. Right. You're not going to move a bunch of factory workers from California to China. Right. And and certainly, I mean, to Pim's point, though, with the skepticism about uh, sort of building the plant, Tesla's ability to do so, they're kind of running out of cash. I do just want to touch on one other thing, JB. We've got about a minute left here. BMW also announced today uh, that it will make mini cars in China for the first time. And I'm just wondering, you know, whether quickly you could just give us an overview of just how much automakers globally are trying to expand their presences in manufacturing in China. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, China is the biggest market, and it is still the fastest growing market in the world. And it's phenomenal to think about it. It's now, you know, approaching twice as big as the United States market, which until the Great Recession was still the world's largest. It's still the most lucrative, but to uh, avoid the to really cater to that market, you know, it is it is so big. You want to have vehicles that are designed for Chinese people that can reduce the cost so that you're cost effective or you know more profitable. Uh, and of course, dealing with a uh, government, a centrally controlled economy, it's always wise to uh, keep those relationships strong and creating jobs in a place helps, uh, helps with that. Thanks very much. Jamie Butters is our U.S. autos analyst for Bloomberg. He joins us from Detroit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.